0: This is Mornings with Silly on 980 CKNW.
1: Let's talk about a lot of the things that we miss, right, in the past year. I think one of those things for a lot of people is going to a concert, listening to some live music. And now that we know that many people are getting vaccinated around the world, it's interesting to see that COVID-19, even testing, has become a requirement for either traveling or going to an event as vaccinating is also now becoming that key. So is that the way that we're going to start going to these kinds of events again? Well, there's a company called CVM Medical, and they provide rapid tests across Canada. And to talk more about this, the ability to to use something like this to go to a music festival, say, uh, he joins us now, it's Graham Williamson, the CEO of CVM Medical's parent organization, Life Support Group. Graham, thank you for being here.
2: Hi, good morning, Sammy. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you. Now, I understand that this technology is being used uh, for in Barcelona?
2: Uh, the technology is being used uh, across the world, uh, but we are very proud to have been the first uh, private organization to introduce it here in British Columbia. Uh, we worked uh, with the Vancouver International Airport on a pilot project back in January to introduce rapid testing where we uh, we replaced the UBC uh, WestJet UBC study that had wound down, right, and uh, so we worked very closely with the College of Physicians and Surgeons and uh, and the Vancouver International Airport uh, team to bring rapid antigen testing to British Columbia. So we we piloted that project in February and uh, expanded it uh, here in March and uh, kicking into high gear for April, which is actually you know quite well timed despite the recent lockdowns and, uh, and pause that's happening here in British Columbia, it's an opportunity to provide an extra layer of protection to travellers, workers, industry, events and concerts, as you mentioned, because as we reopen and as we get going here and uh, and move into a, a higher population that's vaccinated, COVID will remain a risk, will be essential, and the rapid test is the commonly referred to as the 15 minute test is going to be essential to reopening our economy here in British Columbia keep people working safely traveling flying in and out of where they need to go
1: right so they're using technology like this I know that they recently had like a concert with 5,000 people in Barcelona where everybody had to have a test before they went in is that time consuming like how long would that take to test every person before they went into a venue?
2: Yeah, it can be time-consuming, but you have to have the right team in place. You have to have proper number of rapid tests and a lot of nurses and paramedics to get it through. So it's taking healthcare professionals that are trained to use the 15-minute test and literally for an event of 5,000 people, you would have hundreds of machines lined up and you would have a crew that would be swabbing everybody before they go in. They put the swab onto the machine and 15 minutes later, the results are reported to you. So in Barcelona, absolutely. In New York, they are bringing people back into the stands and basketball games. And everybody who's entering and going into that basketball game, chances are they might be vaccinated. But whether or not you are, you still get a 15-minute rapid test before you head into that stadium.
1: So do you see this working in conjunction with potential vaccinations?
2: It has to, because even if we have a vaccine passport or proof of vaccination, COVID is still here and it's going to be here for a while. I think we know that and accept it, despite the fact that once we cross that 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 hump and start to bend that curve down um, through effective use of vaccinations, it's still going to be present. And Moreover, when you look at testing for travel, for instance, and in boarding flights, airlines, and most especially airports and the traveling public want assurance that their flights and their events are going to be COVID-free. So the rapid test provides that yes or no, Right. positive or negative, in that 15-minute window. But most especially, the rapid test is designed to pick up COVID in its acutely infectious stage. So we've all heard about asymptomatic spread. So you're you're someone who's infected acutely with COVID may not know it, or they may have very mild symptoms, but they might have what's called a very high viral load, where they have the potential to shed that virus and to transmit it to others. The rapid test picks it up on the spot.
1: Right. So Um, I guess my question then is, what is the protocol? If you are doing all this and you come across somebody with that high viral load who's tested positive with this rapid test, how do you deal with that person from that moment on?
2: Yeah, we instantly activate our medical protocols where the, 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 the patient at this point is isolated is given medical advice and is provided with secure transportation to either home or to a hospital. So there are extensive protocols in place that are overseen through physician medical direction that are in place with BC CDC that are overseen by the College of Physicians to make sure that if someone tests positive, they're immediately isolated given medical advice and follow up care. And because COVID is a reportable disease, it has to be notified to the health authorities immediately that this person has tested positive so that they can have their teams follow up directly. Right. So when someone tests positive, it moves from a private event such as a concert or a flight into the public health domain so that they can get proper treatment and care right away.
1: So how do you see this in the next couple of months then? How is this technology going to be used? Where do you think we're going to see it more and more?
2: I think you'll see it more and more at the airport, certainly, as we've expanded our project at YVR from a pilot project to a permanent presence at the international airport. You'll see customers who are boarding their flights, for instance, KLM to the uh, Netherlands or the Lufthansa flight, where airlines, airports, and the arrival countries such as Germany require and insist on a rapid test within four hours of boarding their flight and I think you'll see it adopted in uh, remote sites such as LNG projects, and mine sites, forestry and logging camps. But where I think we're going to see this is, again, it's rolled out to areas such as concerts and sporting events and, and large venues where you have, for instance, Olympic teams that are training or you have amateur sports or hockey games where you know rapid testing becomes cheap, it becomes accessible, it becomes affordable, and it's available to, to everyone who, who needs it.
1: So you've been pretty busy the last couple of months
2: yeah very busy absolutely yes it's uh the rapid testing itself is uh, is a is a huge portfolio as as you may know we've been doing the p c r yeah. which is the longer test that's the twenty four thirty six hour turnaround in a lab and and that's not you know that's required for travel it's required to diagnose patients, but it's not it's not as we know a rapid test so this is something that comes out and it's available to the masses to the groups to the 5000 people in in barcelona as you mentioned so yeah it's a it's a big portfolio uh, to say the
1: least so how like what is the accuracy difference between the two a test that takes 24 hours or a test that takes 15 minutes
2: so the 24-hour test is, is bang on 100% uh, accurate. It's done in a lab. It's detecting DNA and RNA. That's the traditional PCR test. The rapid test, it's around 95% Um to detect positive or negative, and it's, you know, that's the 15-minute test, and it's looking for people who are have a very high viral load in their acute phase. So 95% of the time, it's going to pick it up, and I think that's pretty good, particularly when we get into vaccinations, it's reducing the risk, but it's still picking up those cases where they're acutely infectious.
1: So are you planning for well into 2022 at this point?
2: I think we're planning a two- to three-year timeline for rapid testing, absolutely. The forecast for PCR and COVID testing generally around the world, especially with aviation is a five-year timeline right now, but I'd say two to three years is safe, absolutely.
1: All right, I'm sure we'll be seeing your tests around then, Graham. Thank you so much for your time.
2: <laughs> Have a great Easter. Take care, Sammy.
1: You Bye too. For now. It's Graham Williamson, CEO of CVM Medical's parent organization called Life Support Group. This is the company that provides rapid tests right across the country. Uh, if you've been to the airport, they're the ones who provide the rapid tests there, and, and as you heard Graham say, uh, you can expect this to go hand in hand with vaccination over the next year if you want to go places and do things that require people to be in you know, spaces together, this is the way we're going to get out of it.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. Well,
1: not great sports news for Vancouver fans this week. The Canucks are on hold until next week, April the 6th. And this is due to COVID-19 related issues. They are not the only team this year in any league, really, that has struggled to keep things under control. So let's talk about what is going on right now in the NHL in particular. Joining us is host of the sports show on 680 CJOB, Christian O'Malley. Good morning, Christian. Morning, Simi. So, has the Northern Division had just as many troubles, do you think, dealing with this than other divisions in the NHL?
3: I don't think as much. It's more recent for sure, but there was a time when there were multiple teams in other divisions that were dealing with outbreaks that were much worse. We're talking uh, up to not nine plus players in COVID protocol for a couple of teams. Dallas at the start of the season had 17. In protocol, New Jersey had similar numbers in February. Buffalo off before. Boston had uh, time off. So this is more recent, certainly. Uh, But it's also a bit unique because there have been other teams that have had three, four players in COVID protocol and haven't shut down at all. Maybe they shut down a practice. But here in Canada, right, Montreal recently had one positive and they shut down for a week. But that player... We found out, tested positive for a COVID variant. So there was more concern. And in Vancouver, we don't know if that's the case or not with Adam Gaudet and Travis Hamannick, but the NHL decided, along with all the medical experts that are involved in the decision-making, that it's best to shut down this team for a week. And you really can't blame a team or the league for doing that, right? There's, I mean, what's more important, making sure you, you get this under control or getting a couple games in, right? You think they could make the games up at the back end of the schedule, which is what they're going to have to do here. But the number one concern is making sure everybody is safe. So, it's understandable that the NHL made this decision with the Canucks yesterday.
1: I, I did say that I was like I was curious about this because you mentioned Montreal there. Well, the Canucks were the team that had played Montreal just before right. that happened in two games. And so Montreal has this happen. Meanwhile, the Canucks go on to play Winnipeg twice and Calgary twice. And I thought, well, shouldn't they be isolating if there was a problem in Montreal?
3: Right. And so the Canucks play that game March 20th. They come home for two games and then they don't play for a week. And then we find out right as they're coming back that they have a COVID positive. And so the speculation starts with how did God get it? Was it in Vancouver? Was it in Montreal? And this just the incubation period took this long for it to show up. Uh, these are questions that we don't have the answers to. I'm not sure it ultimately matters how someone got it, but he got it and he's a human being and it sucks. And we wish him the best. We want him to be uh, healthy and fully recover but for sure that the the questions remain of of how and if protocols were followed that is valid if protocols were not followed then that is an issue but if he just picked it up because he they played the canadians then maybe they're you know on ice transmission we've seen it i think in one or two other games mm-hmm. for sure but it's been i think the nhl's gotten a little bit lucky but the one issue, maybe, with the theory of the Montreal games, is that only one player had it, right? So maybe he didn't get it there. So how
1: how have teams responded to that? If they've had to go into protocol, they've had to postpone some games. Uh, are they able to bounce back?
3: Well, Montreal's looked pretty good in two games since their break. They've crushed Edmonton and Ottawa after their week off. But again, they only had one player in protocol. And he's he's still not play or one player with COVID. They had a couple in protocol once back that it was close contact, but. He's still not back in the lineup. We've seen teams take a while. Buffalo it was terrible before they went off for COVID. They're terrible since they went off for COVID. But uh, players have admitted that it, it did take a bit of a toll. Uh, the Dallas Stars have had a bit of a rocky season after their start. Uh, they have a really compressed schedule. But they've lost a lot of overtime games. It's been hit or miss, to honestly, depending on the team. Some of the teams that got it were going to be bad anyway, like New Jersey. But I think right. for the... They're, the, we we're seeing with Boston; they just came back. They're having a bit of a rough go of it too. So uh, it's it's not helpful for sure. But you know, Montreal just had this week off, which may have actually helped them. And now we're going to see Winnipeg, who had their two games with Vancouver postponed Tuesday or uh, Sunday and Tuesday upcoming. They're going to have a five day break after tonight's game against the Leafs after a really compressed schedule. So that might end up helping them. But for Vancouver, they're going to go two weeks without playing a game in the uh-huh. middle of the season. That's a long time to not play, and you know, some time off is okay, but two weeks—that's quite a while. And for a team that needs to start winning sacks if they want any chance of making the playoffs, that might be tough to overcome.
1: Yeah, know. I think that's what a lot of us are afraid of. Exactly that, Christian. So, listen, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. No problem. That is Christian Ml, host of the sports show on 680 CJOB, talking about the Canucks in particular uh, dealing with this COVID-19 situation. Now they've got some games postponed. The league has said they're not going to play again until April the 6th. So, yeah, as Christian points out, it'll be about two weeks by the time between games that they will
0: have played. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: While people are getting back into their cars, they're just not necessarily getting back on transit in the same way. So we've been hearing about this story in the last 24 hours from our Global News senior reporter, Janet Brown. Transit ridership is at just 40% of pre-pandemic levels while driving your personal vehicle is at ninety percent. So, what is the impact of this? Do we expect this to be the new norm? Joining us now is Jonathan Cote, Mayor of New Westminster and Chair of the Mayor's Council. Good
4: morning, and thank you for joining us. No, well, good morning, and thanks for having me on the show.
1: Do those numbers worry you?
4: Uh, you know, definitely they're 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 concerning, but uh, you know, I think they're they're not not surprising. We're we're still in a, a global pandemic, and uh, there's there's obviously still lots of factors that are. Are leading people not to not to be using using transit at this time. But I think the the big thing we're concerned about, though, is what's going to be the long term term future of, of transit use uh, in, in the region.
1: So are you able to assess that with people? Like, do you know why people aren't getting back on transit?
4: Yeah, uh, you know, I think a number of factors. Right now, the the biggest factor is uh, is is the, is the health concerns and in being in close proximity with with other people, and, and I think that's understandable. Uh, Translink has has certainly limited the the capacity and, and the amount of people in in facilities, and and people just don't feel as comfortable being in in crowded spaces. Uh, we do think, as we move out of the pandemic, that those concerns will 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 start to start to decrease, and people will feel more comfortable. Having said that the the bigger trend in the longer term will be working from home, studying from home, and those types of activities, and people not getting back to the same type of travel they did before
1: so how is that going to impact our system though? I mean that sounds like you have to plan for something that's two, three you know five years in the future
4: yeah no it's it's definitely definitely a challenge, and uh, you know I think uh, we're really not going to have a, a really good picture until we move out of out of the pan- pandemic, and we're hoping. Uh, You know, come the fall, once the vaccine has has taken a little bit more effect, once universities start opening up there, we will have a better sense of of what the future of of transit ridership will look like. But, you know, at at this point, even the optimistic scenarios still show that we're going to be below our pre-COVID transit ridership for, you know, five, you know, potentially five to 10 years.
1: So that sounds like September will be the big test then, right? When you have all those university students going back to SFU and KPU and UBC?
4: yeah no no doubt uh, you know I think getting uh, getting the universities back open again, uh, both the students and and all the people that work at universities and, and colleges that that represents about thirteen percent of uh, transit ridership in the region so certainly that's a, a big jump that has has, has disappeared uh, but the other big one is is the effectiveness of the the, uh, the vaccine campaign and people feeling more comfortable about getting in, in spaces with others and those will be the two big factors that we think will will lead to a hopefully a, a big jump in, in transit ridership in the fall but we, we really need to move out of covid 19 before we're going to start to see that
1: now, obviously, we had a lot of big plans for our transit system around Metro Vancouver before this happened. How does all of this impact those plans?
4: Yeah, well, you know, I think the the big impact is uh, is the impact to, to the bottom line for uh, for, for TransLink in, in in the region here. Uh, transit fares do, do make up a, a significant uh, operating uh, funding for, uh, for for the transit system there, and uh, you know, I think we're going to have to have to grapple with. What do we deal with the fact that our our projections for ridership, uh, you know, a year ago no longer uh, no longer seem as, uh, as as relevant there? So it's too early to tell exactly what the, the long term financial impact will be, but we're we're going to likely have to make some some adjustments uh, in terms of in terms of our plans or in terms of how we how we fund uh, transit into the future as well too. I I think. Public transit is still going to be incredibly relevant in cities uh, post COVID COVID nineteen. In a city like Metro Vancouver, it's going to be important there. But you know, I think we've got to be mindful that uh, there's been some big big shifts that's, that, that have happened, and we're going to have to work and plan our way through that.
1: Are, are we talking about perhaps revisiting the ten year plan?
4: Well, you know, I think uh, you know a lot of the components of, of the ten year plan are, are in the works and in, in place, and I think many are, are still very much much relevant. Uh, you know, I think. Uh, south of the Fraser River is still expanding rapidly and uh, you know the mayor's council is still working and committed towards uh, the SkyTrain expansion there because we see the tremendous growth south of the Fraser Fraser River and and we do know people will get back to transit but I think we do need to recognize that uh, you know our projections are showing we you know there's going to be revenue shortfalls particularly in the short term but even even the medium long term and we're going to have to make some some adjustments and, and work our way through that
1: right It's so cyclical right because what one thing we have seen is this increase in the housing market demand for supply well if that supply gets built, if they start building it, it will be farther out and there'll be more cars and people won't want to drive and they're going to want to get back on transit. But are we talking 10 years away here?
4: Well, no, you know, so, you know, I think that's why we, we don't want to necessarily over overreact and uh, and, and throw our, our, our transit expansion plans out, out the window as well, too, because I think the last thing we want to do is actually not be able to provide good transit when people feel comfortable coming back, uh, because then you could really end up in a, a death spiral for, for transit. If you're cutting transit at the time that people are feeling comfortable coming back transit won't be comfortable and there'll be yet another reason for people not to choose transit so it's it's going to be a delicate balance but I, I think we don't want to overreact at, at this point and I think we we need to stay committed to our, our public transit system because I, I think the reality is Metro Vancouver, uh, with, with all the challenges we have, if, if we didn't have a good, robust uh, public transit system, uh, our, our city would be even, even greater gridlocked than it, than it current, currently is, and, uh, and our trans- just transportation system would ultimately fail.
1: So what are the next steps here that you think that, the, that you're going to have to take?
4: Yeah, well, you know, I think we're we're still very much in a, in a holding pattern rate right, uh, right now. Uh, you know, I think fall is going to be the real good signal to to give us a, a really better idea of what's what's going to be happening longer term with with transit ridership. How many people are are coming back? Uh, you know, there's there's some really op, uh, you know, really positive uh, scenarios where where we get a lot of our transit ridership back. And there's other parts in the world where transit ridership has has rebounded actually quite well. Uh, even, uh, even in this, uh, this, this period there. Um, but we're really not going to have a, a good sense until, until that fall period when the vaccine takes effect and, uh, and universities uh, start opening up and, and, and potentially more people going back to, to working in offices. And I think that'll give us a, a much stronger, stronger position to, to really then decide what, uh, what types of decisions we need to make given the, the impact that COVID has had on public transit use. All
1: right, lots to keep an eye on. Thank you so much for your time.
4: No, well, thanks for having me.
1: That's Jonathan Cote, Mayor of New Westminster, Chair of the Mayor's Council. So you get an idea there of this delicate balancing act that they're doing right now where transit ridership is down. It's just 40% of pre-pandemic levels. But September... You know, university students are all supposed to be headed back, university and college students heading back to class, heading back to campus. So you could see how that would bring a lot of people back to transit. But in the meantime, you got to figure out how do you fund the system and keep moving forward with all the projects when you're trying to anticipate, you know, some of the changes of the next few
0: years. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So this week we heard about an update to BC's Employment Standards Act. And that update will guarantee that part and full-time employees in this province can take time away from work to go and get vaccinated without fear of losing their jobs. Is that enough, though? Well, let's talk more about this. Joining us is Gavin McGarigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor. Good morning, Gavin. Good
5: morning, Sammy. How are
1: you? Good, thank you. Uh, Do you think the government should do more here?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a no-brainer. I mean, nobody should have to lose pay to get vaccinated. This is something that the government needs to do immediately, make it paid uh, so that we can all get vaccinated quicker. And That's what they need to do.
1: So is it like the same, are you thinking it would be similar to, say, Election Day, right? You're entitled to time off to go and vote.
5: Yeah, absolutely, and that's a great example. I mean, we as a society have decided it's so important. Most people will vote outside of work, but there are people who can't so we make allowances for that it's already in the law it's in the law of most provinces and they should do the same thing most good employers are already stepping up and creating that window for their employees to get vaccinated with pay Uh, but you can't rely on everyone i mean just look at what happened with big white Uh, we see that there are employers out there that are putting their own short-term interest ahead of the community and that's exactly why the government needs to step in
1: so how would that work then so it's just you that would that allow an employee to just be the freedom to make the appointment whenever they can
5: yeah absolutely i mean they should take the first appointment that they can get and it's the same thing with with elections you know it's based on a trust system you don't have employees coming back and showing that they voted or telling their employer how they voted and it's the same thing for this you know you give the people a leave you work with them in good faith to 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 get the vaccination and uh you know, we move forward from there. Uh, you know, as I said, most people will figure out a way to get this done. But I've already heard, Simi, employers taking the really short side of view where they've said, oh, this is an evenings and weekends thing that we can do. And if we can't get verification, how could we possibly do this? I mean, it's really just ridiculous. The reality is, we all need to get vaccinated as quickly as possible, and there should be no barriers. And you know, employers have been asking for a lot of support, and and that's great because they do need that support. But at the end of the day, it's time to step up. It's time to help their employees get vaccinated. And if you know, making sure that somebody gets paid for a couple hours is what it's going to take. Then, then that's the cost of of protecting their coworkers, protecting the customers, and protecting the entire community.
1: Yeah, are you worried about what's going to happen? as that age-based rollout gets lower and lower? Because right now we're talking about people who are probably retired, right? People 72 and older are the ones who are getting vaccinated. As we get younger, is this going to become a bigger issue?
5: Absolutely. Uh, we've already seen it that, you know, at the bargaining table, for instance, we've seen employers that were trying to bargain new contracts and they're trying to take away paid sick days. I mean, that's the other part of this. A paid vaccination leave is just a very... Minimal that we could do. We should be moving forward to paid sick days as well, because you hear Dr. Henry and 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 Minister Dix talking about, you know, if you're sick, isolate. Well, if you're working in any kind of a job and you have to go home, uh, you have to stay isolated for a couple days, get a test, comes back negative, go back to work. And if that happens three or four times, which has happened to many. Of our members and many workers out there, who's paying you for that? And so, you know, by the first or second time you do this, we're already hearing about testing fatigue. Um, You know, workers are going to be like, I'm not going to bother this time. So, you know, paid vaccination leave really is just The most minimal no-brainer, they should table a bill immediately and demand all party support um, from all of the parties. And and let's get this done and start talking about, uh, you know, the next step, which is paid sick days.
1: You know, I feel like we've been talking about paid sick days from the very beginning of this pandemic. Has, Has there not been progress on this front?
5: Uh, we've been pushing hard many organizations have been pushing hard sammy i went back to a letter we wrote to the premier uh last march i think it was march 20th or you know a few days into the pandemic and we were demanding paid sick days the reality is uh, as i've heard it's simply employer pushback and look we get it a lot of businesses are suffering a lot of workers are suffering and so they don't want to add in the extra cost but that's why we have government to say look you know the, the best thing to do for all of us is to require you to step up Uh, The government has stepped up in many different ways, uh, the provincial government better than most. But the reality is this is simply employer pushback. They simply don't want to bear that cost of paying their employees to go home when they're sick. And that is a huge gap in our response. And by the way, it's a huge gap across the entire country. But here in British Columbia, we have a progressive government. We should be able to expect uh, that they're stepping up. And certainly we've taken that case to the premier and to all of the ministers we had 50 or 60 uh, uniform members meeting with uh, various members of the government last week. But you're right, it's a gaping hole, and we've been talking about it, and all provinces have been talking about it, and nobody has stepped up. And that's why, when it comes to paid vaccination leave, it's like, are you kidding me? We're, we can't even get to paid sick days right now, and we're talking about whether or not people should get some time off to get vaccinated? Uh, I think the public doesn't have any appetite for that, particularly since we've seen uh, the kinds of restrictions and pullback uh, that we've seen this week.
1: It really is surprising to me, too, because the message has been for the past year is if you're sick, don't go to work. If you're sick, stay home. And obviously we know that's a problem. Are people still going to work if they're sick?
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. They are. Uh, and, And again, I just give you the example. Just just picture anyone that maybe goes in the first couple of times they get tested. Right. They, I'm not going back again. Or you get people that, you know, they, they don't want to apply for the, the federal benefit is only in one week chunks. And, you know, it doesn't account for if you have to go and get tested a bunch of times. So absolutely, people are living paycheck to paycheck. And just think about this. I mean, if the minimum wage is roughly around $15 an hour, let's say it takes someone two hours to go. You know, they can only get an appointment during work and they need two hours to go and get it done. That's $30 to someone. You know, that's that's a couple of days of groceries in some cases for people. That's a utility bill. Right. So this is serious stuff. And when people are that close to the edge, uh, this little boost to make sure that paid vaccination time uh, is clear to them it will make a difference between mm-hmm. people getting vaccinated or not. And not only that, I mean, the speed that they get vaccinated. We don't right. want people sitting around thinking about this for three or four months. You know, we want them to right. take the first opportunity they get and go in and get vaccinated. And that's good for all of us.
1: All right, Gavin, thanks so much for your time.
0: Thanks again, Simi. It's
1: Gavin McGarigal, Western Regional Director of
0: Unifor. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: There must have been an enormous collective sigh of relief yesterday as more relaxed rules for visiting people in long-term care came into effect. People had been waiting months to be able to hug a loved one, just see a loved one, for that loved one to be able to Get out of their room, perhaps, and go to the dining room or just anything. So we wanted to talk about what that looked like and what people who are planning to schedule a visit might need to know. Joining us is Dan Levitt, who teaches long-term care administration at Simon Fraser University and is the Executive Director at Tabor Village. Dan, thanks for being here.
6: Good morning, Simi. Great to be here.
1: What was yesterday like?
6: Oh, yesterday was a day of celebration. Um, It was so great to see, and uh, I thought John Watt did a great job covering it for, for Global, um, it was incredible. It was emotional. Um, you had families visiting um, with grandchildren that hadn't seen um, their grandparent for months, and um, in some cases for years. Um, we have more people now who are able to visit at end of life, and uh, people are getting out of the rooms. People are going to the gardens. People are visiting with each other, and it feels like we're back to normal, which um, everybody's been um, so patient, and we've all craved that for the past year.
1: Okay, there must have been some tears.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty emotional um, seeing somebody that you haven't seen for a long time. And as a resident living in care, as you described, when you're spending a lot of your time in um, in your room and people coming and going are wearing masks and now somebody comes in that you've known all your life, and even with dementia, um, it's incredible to, to see that kind of reunion. And it's long overdue, and we're so excited that it's happening now.
1: Do you think that we will see... Um, uh, an improvement, I guess, in the way some people are feeling in long-term care. This should be a boost for people, right?
6: Absolutely. I mean, we all know ourselves what it's been like for the past year, and but we haven't been living in you know, the confines of a, a single room. And so now um, we're able to, to introduce another, if you will, layer of therapy, an, another layer of that human connection that should combat loneliness, helplessness and boredom. And so we should see things like the rates of, of medication to to address those emotional concerns. We should see some of those go down and we should see um, basically that human connection and you know if you will our rights being restored so we can have that family connection that we so much need.
1: So can you give us an idea, Dan, of what changes happened yesterday? So from say Wednesday to Thursday, what the difference in a place like Tabor Village? Well,
6: first of all, we, we, uh, we over the past week, got a online booking system up and running. And uh, it's kind of like uh, if you're going to uh, open Table for a restaurant reservation. Um, it's just like that system. So we created that at Tabor um, in the past week. We have a phenomenal team that puts together, and you can go online. Uh, we've made it available. We turned it on at 11 o'clock on uh, Wednesday evening. And by Thursday lunchtime, we had 100, 140 people had uh, put a request in. And that's over of all the residents and tenants who live at Tabor Village, um, they had somebody who wanted to come visit them that hadn't been able to visit them before. So that itself was um, a a huge accomplishment. And there are rules that we have to uh, implement to make sure this is still safe. But we do have a system now where people can come in um, at a scheduled time and visit with their loved one. So that itself has been um, a tremendous difference.
1: So is that what you did there with the booking system, you said, like OpenTable, mm-hmm. uh, is that something that other long-term care homes did too, or were you all left kind of to your own devices to figure this out?
6: Well, yeah, so so there are certain things that we all do together as an industry and, and uh, working with the health authorities, and there are also things we do on our own. Um, so we're contracted providers, so each nursing home can provide this differently. I guess the approach could be different, but at the end of the day, um, we all are following the same rules. We are all opening up our doors to visitors, making sure that um, you can have three people visiting at once, um, that we don't restrict visitors in terms of, of overseeing it in, in detail. Um, we're approaching it differently, but the end result will be the same in all nursing homes.
1: Right. Okay. So setting up that system then to get people in, uh, are, was it really busy or did you get kind of a crush of people right away who wanted to do this?
6: Yeah, you know, yeah, we had a, a flood of uh, of interest of people wanting to visit. Um, it, it is just like Open Table, where you you can only book a certain time slot, and sometimes those times are, once they're reserved, they're gone. So we have to uh, make sure that we have um, enough uh, people staggered so that we don't have that, those lineups at the front door because that wouldn't be safe. So we're making sure it works for for our ecosystem at Tabor Village, and every nursing will probably approach it slightly differently.
1: So is this weekend going to be busy? Or are there a lot of visits booked?
6: Yeah, um, we're flooded with with visitation, which is great. That's what we want to see, and especially um, we're a faith-based organization. We're celebrating Easter. Uh, this is a very important time of the year uh, for our community, and uh, it's going to be important to have that reunion happening. And people will be coming in over the weekend, and we're really excited about that.
1: Okay, so then in discussing these new rules, Dan, what do people need to know? If they're thinking, okay, now it's time for me to go visit that relative or friend in long-term care, what still applies here?
6: So. They want to um, book it as far enough in advance as possible. And our booking system allows for 14 days in advance. Um, so I would plan in advance. If you're thinking, you know, in the morning you wake up and say, I want to go see grandma, um, you might not be able to do that. You want to plan um, ahead. Um, you, you can bring um, three people together, can go visit um, a loved one. They should be from the same bubble, um, ideally living in the same household um, at a time. Um, we're uh, requesting that really they only visit in the residence room, and uh, these are small spaces. So sometimes I would say three people uh, visiting with a loved one it'd be hard to maintain that physical distancing. so I would kind of limit the numbers if, where you can. I'm um, certainly visiting outside. you can have more people. Um, you're still required to wear a mask. Um, hand hygiene is required um, we're recommending eye protection and um, we will be screening people as they enter including taking taking the temperature um hand hygiene is is important and uh there are times of the day where um you can't visit um, we don't want to interrupt things like um personal care that goes on, meal times, and certain things like, like baths are, are scheduled. So we do have to work around the schedule of the individual. And remember, these are adults that we're visiting, so they also have um, their choice of, of visiting with us. So we want to make sure that, that they have you know, that, the right to say, um, it's been nice to see you, Dan, but um, you know I'm going to go back to my TV show or go back to right. my TV, visiting my neighbor um, who's expecting to see me in, in a few minutes.
1: Okay, that's good to know too. So how has this been for the staff?
6: Oh, for the staff, I mean, you know, it's, it's twofold. On, on one hand, you have the anxiety of uh, now we have with all those variants and all the, the new case counts. Um, there's lots of anxiety around the possibility of further outbreaks after what people have been through. Um, we'll never forget what happened in the past year. So you have that piece. And then you also have the the, the balance, that the other side of the scale, which is that family members are part of the care team and they've been excluded from, from that, that process. And the the staff members have been the family members de facto because they haven't been able to come in en masse. So now you have that added bonus of having family members who are adding that extra dimension that's been missing over the past year.
1: Such an important time for everybody. Dan, thanks so much for your time on that today. Anytime, Simi. That's Dan Levitt. He teaches long-term care administration at Simon Fraser University, but also the executive director at Tabor Village, Whereas you heard, boy, they really kind of sprung into action with these loosened restrictions for visiting people in long-term care, which took effect yesterday.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. So we've
1: been talking about how there's these digital trading cards that have just been exploding in popularity, right? It's all part of this new market that has sprung up thanks to the creation of NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Well, it turns out that old school trading cards are also becoming popular once again. So joining us to talk about what he has observed over the last year is the owner of AA Sports Cards, Mike Chark. Good morning, Mike.
7: Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. How's business these days?
7: Well, I've never been happy to uh feel old. I got to tell you. It's uh <laughs> it's it's a really still a year into this. I, I talk to people that do what I do and we still sort of can't believe what's happened. And um in a nutshell, business business has been fantastic. It 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 seems like uh Uh, a rebirth of what I've done my whole life, but people have rediscovered this or discovered it for the first time. Um, There's, there's uh, it's, it's just hard to believe that it, it, it is happened again, but it is, and it's been, uh, been
1: great. So are you saying that like this, this started during the beginning of the pandemic? Like, does that coincide with this? it, It
7: really, it really does. Um, there were tremors of of things happening before. But I think what really happened was after, you know, reflecting on this, I think probably what happened was people were at home. And all of a sudden, you had this dynamic of instead of, you know, parents dropping their kids off at school and going to work and everybody sort of doing their own thing and not being together, you were stuck at home, you were all together. And I know, as a parent, I think uh, fathers, are always trying to bond with their kids. And I think, you know, this is primarily still a hobby that interests boys. It's just, you know, that it, there are girls that do it, but, but it's mostly boys. And it's, a. I I think, uh, what happened was that maybe, uh, some dads brought out their old hockey cards and, Sat down at a table with their kids and there was this instant connection um, right. you know, for the game and for, you know, a dad would tell his kid about watching Wayne Gretzky play <laughs> and then the, the kid would sort of, um, you know, try to, uh, um, uh, you know sort yeah. of uh what you know you so wanted, I,
1: wanted to get involved saw this was yeah, new think, and cool just, and i thought right. i could probably instagram this and boom they were off and, and, and running
7: and, and that's another thing that when you know years and years ago when this had popularity there was no social media so all of a sudden young kids could um, connect feel part of a community show off their collections yeah um, maybe you know so the father could sort of um Reminisce about the old days, and then the son could steer his dad well, into the new, the new kind of thing. Everybody you know? has a story,
1: though, right, Mike? About this because, like, I'm thinking about even when I was a kid, I had a Wayne Gretzky rookie card. Yeah, I yeah. actually did have a Wayne, Gretzky, but guess what? I wrote my name all over the back of it because I had a bunch of cousins, and we all shared like trading cards, and well, you know I wanted what? to I make sure it was mine.
7: <laughs> a lot of old, a lot of old collections. I buy boys would write girls a note on the back of their Wayne Gretzky cards, yeah. like, "Hi Heather, do you like me as a as a friend?" Or than a friend you get a lot of that um yeah no it's it's uh it's sort of like uh sort of like Woodstock everybody thinks they were there not so much with the Gretzky rookie but like that Mickey Mantle card from 1962 right. uh a lot of people convinced they had that maybe they did but maybe Mike they didn't. there's but, been yeah.
1: bubbles before right like I feel mm-hmm. like the trading card industry goes through ups and downs right it's been a roller yeah. coaster ride for you
7: yeah so that's very true and I'm trying to enjoy this and I'm trying to be optimistic, but in the back of my mind, there are some parallels to what happened before. And listen, this can't keep going. Nothing goes up and up and up. And some of the value, not everything, this is the other thing, not everything is exploded in value, but a lot of it has, but that's the thing where no one wants to be left holding the bag. So, You're always, you know, guarded in a way when you're doing this day in, day out, you're, you're, you're very aware of that. So So that's a great point.
1: What is selling right now then? Like what is doing well?
7: The 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 hottest part of the market I think is basketball, and that's probably because uh, basketball and soccer, and that's probably because of the popularity of the sports around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we tend to think of hockey as our game; it is, but outside of Canada and a few other places in the states, hockey's really at the bottom of the rung. So basketball, uh, which and the NBA does such a good job. You're talking about Top talk Shot, the NBA. Does such a good job of marketing their athletes. Yeah. And um, so, really, it's, um, it's uh, every, I mean, wrestling is popular. Every, there isn't anything that hasn't had a dramatic increase in value. Uh, and it's not just sports, it's entertainment cards, it's, you know, television cards. What? It's, yeah,
1: there's, <laughs> there's that, there, there is that kind of stuff
7: like there, there most definitely is there's cards on, uh, you know, shows like the X-Files and the Simpsons and some of those wow. cards are a uh, uh, magic. Magic is also poke po- I that, you know, this I'll show you my age here. I don't even pronounce it properly. Po- Pokemon, poke it. That stuff. <laughs> see, that that's like I see and I'm 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 surrounded so, by. So let me all get it. Of that. So with Mike, you didn't know, you didn't
1: get Pokemon the first time, and you're still not getting I it this time, I time around either. Tell you
7: the, the <laughs> difference between a Charizard and uh, <laughs> I don't even know what that stuff is. I'm fascinated by oh, it, but that's yeah, too it, funny. Yeah, yeah. But okay. The, the, the thing about that, though, I just quickly the thing about that is that's the beauty of this is it doesn't matter if you're 8 or 80, you can find something to interest yeah. you in in collecting.
1: So what did you think when you started to see these NFTs, these digital trading cards?
7: I felt like I was standing on a platform watching a train go by at 100 miles an hour and I decided pretty quickly that I wanted to be uh, the, the keg or the white spot of this. I'm, I just don't get it. I'm going to be I'm going to be the same thing I was 20 years ago, 20 years from now. The classic kind of thing, which I understand right. and I get. I I think uh, it's it's a young person's game and good for them, and it just bodes well for the future. Listen, this is the, this is what's going to so, be.
1: Yeah. What is the hottest thing right now? So, if I wanted to get a trading card, let's let's yeah. call it basketball because I do love basketball. Yeah. What's the yeah. hottest basketball trading card right now?
7: Truthfully, it's probably, uh, LeBron James, because again, he connects to someone young, someone old. Uh, he's, he's an iconic name already. Kobe Bryant is uh revered um again for the same kind of reasons there's zion Luca, the young you know the the, right. the the cards that are up but you know we're a little bit detached from it here because again we lost our we lost the team i i always wonder what would happen if we still had the grizzlies here oh so do uh, i you know an interesting point along that steve nash cards sell very well in vancouver huh. they don't sell very well in um, you know houston <laughs> so there, there's always a regional factor. Same thing with, you know, a, a, another factor is local players like Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, and Brock Besser. Those cards are universally popular, but there's always a hometown. Right. Um, you know, they sell more in Vancouver and for higher prices than they would in uh, Detroit.
1: Okay, so what's your website?
7: My website is www.aasportscards.com, two A's. And uh, I appreciate you asking about that. And I, I post things on there, I think, that are, you know, sometimes um, can if, if someone is interested in getting involved in, in collecting cards, I think uh, they they should definitely check out my website. And okay. They should definitely, yeah, go online and, and, and join a social media group, feel part of a community. You can learn things really quickly. in this. if you're a fan of sports, you pick it up very quickly.
1: All right. I'm going to go take a look. Mike, thanks for joining us. And listen, good luck.
7: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's Mike Chark. He's the owner of AA Sports Cards. You can check out their website, as he said. It is aasportscards.com. And yeah, everything old is new again at some point. The pandemic has meant a boon in business for these guys.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, we've reached a landmark moment, actually, in our vaccination program here in BC. All individuals living in First Nations indigenous communities in BC have now had access to the first shot of a COVID-19 vaccine. Now that program is being expanded to members living outside of those communities. So joining us now to talk more about that is Nell Wyman, Senior Medical Officer with the First Nations Health Authority. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, this must have been quite the effort. What, what has it been like trying to get this done?
8: It's been a, bit, a busy few months. Uh, the first vaccines were rolled out on December 29th of 2020. And it was our goal at FNHA to have um, all communities have access to the first dose by March 31st. So we did accomplish that goal on that very day.
1: Wow. Congratulations. So uh, that must've involved going to some remote areas in some cases.
8: Yeah, initially in the phase one of the rollout, um, we identified 10 uh, remote and isolated communities uh, and they were um, provided, you know, with the first dose um, of the vaccine quite early in in January. And the logistics, of course, involved in that are very complicated. You know, we have uh, photos and videos on our website of vaccines arriving by boat and float plane and, you know, however we could get them there.
1: Okay. And so what was the take up? Were people there in those communities like happy to line up for this?
8: Yeah, I would say in general, the response from, uh, BC First Nations people are that they are quite anxious to get the vaccine. Um, obviously they, you know, see it as one tool in our way out of this pandemic. And I don't think in, in too many places have we had to, you know, really encourage people. And, uh, I think that's partly because we started messaging quite early about the benefits of the vaccine, its safety, um, and its effectiveness.
1: Okay. So you've done that in the communities now. So now what is the next step here?
8: The next step is to complete uh, the vaccination of urban populations um, and what we call away from home. Uh, So we have clinics running in all five regions, um, working, of course, with our regional partners, regional health authority partners, uh, to ensure that all Indigenous people, um, not just First Nations, 18 years and older can be vaccinated at this point.
1: Okay, so then how do all of those Indigenous people, 18 and over, get access to this what do they do
8: most of them um the different uh the different health authorities the different regions have phone numbers to call for now um, and there will be a provincial online system i think that's going to be launched as of april 6 so people can either call in now and book an appointment or they can wait until april 6 and book online
1: now do you think that is the challenge now is kind of communicating to those people out in the community
8: Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that that's a challenge, but I think, you know, uh, we have also tried to do quite a bit of messaging to reach out to uh, what we call our away from home uh, population so that they know that they are now eligible and that they can uh, make a vaccine appointment
1: what what kind of a difference did the vaccinations make? I know there had been some outbreaks that we had talked about in the news, one on Vancouver Island. So is that done now? Do you think most of those communities can feel fairly safe and secure?
8: I think what we have tried to message is that, you know, following the first dose, one still has to be really vigilant, right? So we've been encouraging people to continue with the public health measures um, that they have been over this past year or more, including frequent hand-washing, wearing the mask, etc. And of course, we now, all of us in British Columbia, have to follow the new public health orders that were announced on March 29th. But I think, you know, having had at least at minimum that first dose, We're hearing stories of of people feeling very relieved, uh, feeling less anxious because they know that they're protecting not only themselves, but their family members, their community members. That must
1: be really rewarding to hear that from people, just that that relief that they have. (laughs)
8: It is. It is. You know, I think, you know, at FNHA with our regional teams, and I mentioned the regional health authority partners and provincial partners, this has been a massive undertaking uh, and a lot of work. But, you know, when you accomplish something like reaching, you know, every DC First Nations community, it definitely feels uh, rewarding.
1: Well, Nell, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about it.
8: Thanks for having me.
1: That's Nell Wyman, Senior Medical Officer with the First Nations Health Authority. They have managed to, and that would have been a hard, hard uphill battle, but they have managed to vaccinate all individuals who live in First Nations communities in BC. That's the first, they've all had their first shot of the COVID-19 vaccine. So now they're expanding the program to Indigenous people living outside of those communities. So essentially anywhere in BC, if you are Indigenous and you are entitled to get your first shot of the vaccine. vaccine. So contact your local health authority for more information.